having a beer after a hard day's work once meant putting up with a six o'clock swill. The swill is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. Welcome to the Six O'Clock Swill, the show detested by the modern-day wowsers, otherwise known as the people of woke. I'm Nick Cater, and joining me, of course, is Tim Blair, and we're a slim-down minimalist show this week, just you and I against the world, Tim, but we'll carry on. Yes, yes, we'll try to. I mean, you know, we keep losing people to COVID, I guess, don't we? We do. Just falling by the wayside, haul them outside, and the carts come eventually and take them away, or... You know, if, if the carter is on strike, it's uh, you know, we just let their bones bleach in the sun. I should say the extraordinary number of, of Fred Paul fans, I mean, far more than you'd expect. That he's, he's still alive, as far as we know. It's my point I wanted to reassure them. He does have a lot of, um, lot of fans and family in Western Australia who crave any kind of access to the outside world. So I think that's where the audience is coming from, for Fred. I think that's right. Yes, they're, they're gradually losing their... their whatever grip uh, that they had on um, any sense of nationhood or um, even even broader humankind. So uh, Fred provides a, 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 an audio lifeline to his, uh, his Western Australian. And look, it's understandable he can't join us. Uh, there has been a shark attack in Sydney this week, a shark death. And since he is the Paul Kelly of shark world, the go-to man on the issue of nasty creatures from the sea biting people's legs off uh he's he's obviously been flat out but look you we're, we're battle on we're, I, I don't know what sort of week you've had tim but i've been doing exactly what i didn't want to do after covid and that's getting in planes and flying and rushing around all week being barked at by Qantas stewardesses because i somehow neglected to cover my entire nose with the mask <laughs> um do they know how big my nose is incidentally but look i mean the Having got through all that, I had a wonderful lunch with Theresa May, uh, the former British Prime Minister well, in the, uh, in Melbourne, yeah. which I hosted. And I have to, I don't know what you thought about her as Prime Minister. I mean, I think not much. No, uh, except for uh, just incredible staying power. You know, when for those dreadful months when she was on the nose, uh, she was up there day after day in question time unrelenting um which i think goes to her character but i, I she, she, there's a lot more to her than just brexit I, I i reminded her when she came that as home secretary uh she'd done a few really striking things one was to give the police more power to arrest suspects wearing masks and i i said well i should warn you mrs may that they'd be flat out now yeah i said i warn you mrs may that in melbourne very different rules apply so make sure you have your mask on when you leave this building it's the, it's the reverse in melbourne you get beaten up by cops if you don't have a mask so you have to, i mean that's just you know I, I guess for someone coming from the uk that's just another one of those down under things in the uk you get arrested for uh, for being masked and down uh, here it's the opposite yes because we walk upside down here of course the um and, but you know, I go. Obviously, she wanted to say this was a, this was a you know a, a lunch for worthy people, and I was I was emceeing. She wanted to say on climate change. That's fine. We might agree to disagree on some of the finer points of that. But again, to her record as Home Secretary, 
the police came to her asking for the power to use water cannon to, to hose down protesters on the streets of London, and she flatly refused as Home Secretary. She said, that's not the way we police. We police by consent in this country, not by coercion or force. And when it came to talking about policing, particularly in Victoria, and, that, and the whole coercion thing during uh, lockdown, locked during COVID, I think you and her would be... Uh, on the same page. So there you go. That's Theresa May, great woman. There might also be a cultural issue with spraying British people with water, but I don't want to go to stereotypes at this point. <laughs> you mean it might be a public health measure of some sort, <laughs> after <laughs> all? <laughs> no, we won't go to stereotypes. They're, um, uh, I, I've known a few British people in my time, and they've all been pretty good um, most of the time <laughs> um, at showering. Um, anyway, uh, look, I mean, if you're running this podcast according to the importance of the events of the week, I think you'd have to start with the continuing protests against vaccine mandates, which are getting a pace of their own and turning into something much bigger, I think, than just about vaccine mandates. But look, let's talk about that later. And first, Tim, let's talk about the great PJ O'Rourke, one of the great humorists, one of the great columnists, one of the great writers and somebody you and I admired and indeed have met passed away this week. Tim, your memories of PJ? Well, I, I've probably read more PJ than most of his fans. Who, in Australia especially, uh, most people who are familiar with and enjoy PJ O'Rourke's work, it was through his books, which in some cases were collections of columns from places like Rolling Stone and Harper. But I first happened upon him in the I think either late 70s or very early 80s, when he was first a writer and then editor-in-chief of a magazine called National Lampoon, which um, was so strikingly unpolitically correct, even for that era, (laughs) that you'd flick through it and wonder, how on earth can this be published? (laughs) It was that good. And, of course, these days you can't. And uh, anyone who hasn't seen late 70s, early 80s era National Lampoon magazines, you can sometimes find them on eBay or, you know, look around on those sort of areas. And uh, for anyone of the woke generation, you probably require some sort of sedatives after even flicking through the contents pages. And that's where I first encountered him. And then he would turn up in places like... um, he loved cars, and he would uh, write for um, a, a terrifically mm. literary automotive magazine in the US called Car and Driver. And uh, there were tremendous pieces about you know, driving through uh, the UK and uh, in these bizarre things, riding motorcycles in the US, and, and all manner of curious trips. Uh, travel writing became a big deal. Arguably, he was the motoring writer who set things up for Jeremy Clarkson, you know, to turn motoring writing into more than just, you know, descriptions of horsepower and naught to 60 in how many seconds and just turn it into a pleasant, you know, something that you really wanted to Yeah, he, he pretty much didn't care for the, that style of writing. He was um, a beautifully observant writer. Mm. And uh, one of the tests, I think, I can't recall who said this during the week, but uh, one of the tests of a good satirist is that they can be funny outside a narrow field. Uh, so you have a lot of political satirists who, yeah, that can be pretty funny when they're writing about politics, but put them outside that world and they struggle a little bit, whereas PJ could be funny on any subject, including just people who are 
random passengers next to him on a flight somewhere, and he would he was just so acute in his observations. It's a yeah. It, not it, to, uh, rereading his books and magazine articles is really worth everybody's while. Not just funny, but incredibly wise. And I mean, I, I think he was one of those people, a bit like our, our, our late friend Bill Leake. You know, uh, the intellectual who disguises his own intellect through humour, but is an intellect nonetheless. Mm. Just reading, going back and thinking of some of the things he wrote, you know, giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys, you know. Yes. I mean, this is, uh, uh, this is just true. Exactly. There is only one basic human right, the right to do as you damn well please. And with that comes the only basic human duty, the duty to take the consequences. I mean, this is this is, you know, liberal philosophy as, you know, Hayek could have written it or Friedman, (laughs) except Hayek and Friedman couldn't write as well as P.J. O'Rourke. And of course, P.J. began on the far left. Uh, He he tells the story of how... um, he returned to his family home uh, after one year of college, and his grandmother was very concerned that he'd um, he he might have become a Democrat. And he said, "No, he wasn't a Democrat." He told his grandmother that he was a Maoist, <laughs> and and his grandmother said, "Well, it, just so long as you're not a Democrat." Yeah, he said, "Of course, the Democrats are the party that says government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass off your lawn." The Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected to prove it. <laughs> yeah, he was a he was a he was an equal opportunity uh, attacker on, on that, that sort of stuff. And of course, you know, depending on which era you're from, you might have expected the younger PJ to have been possibly a Donald Trump supporter just for the sheer chaos of it. Mm. But mm. It, he was very much against Trump, very much so. And uh, some people detected a kind of a shift towards the Republican uh, establishment in PJ uh, during the Trump years. But even then, like even when he was, you know, he was, he gave many sort of speeches and uh, wrote articles saying that Trump would never get elected. When he was elected, PJ made fun of himself. He always made fun of himself, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He told people that he was uh, the world's foremost expert on getting things wrong. If I thought some of the things that P.J. Rortko came up with very wise advice. Never fight an inanimate object. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. You're not going to win against a wall. No, that's right. Always read something that will make you look good if you die in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> Your timing might be an issue, might it? You've got to just always have some, uh, some Shakespeare at hand in case the pains begin. He told a great story, actually, the last time I saw him uh, with a few other people. Because I was fascinated by his period at National Lampoon, and um, which grew out of the magazine had its beginnings uh, as a satirical journal at Harvard, and PJ did not go to Harvard. PJ went to Miami University, but not the one in Florida, the one in, I think, Idaho or Iowa or somewhere like that, Ohio, sorry, Ohio, and um, he felt even as editor in chief, he was on the outer at National Lampoon because it was surrounded, you know, it was full of all these Harvard and uh, and Yale sort of people. And he told this great story of how, because the magazine is funny as hell, even now and will be forever, but he told this story about how at most workplaces, when you're not working, that's when the fun happens, that's when you're flirting, that's when you're talking, you're flirting with co-workers or you're talking about what you did on the weekend or, you know, you're not working, then you have to do the boring, awful part, which is the job. 
and he said that National Lampoon was exactly the opposite. The work was great fun. You get to write whatever you wanted, tell these incredibly, you know, these days horrifying jokes. Uh, you got to do all this uh, brilliant art layout, working with incredibly talented artists. But uh, the social side of it, he said, it was riven, the magazine was riven by all these feuds and disputes that have went back you know, centuries, possibly, between various literature and English departments at these stupid Ivy League universities. So he he was um, he was great to great to hear him talk about. I mean, you just don't don't get an idea of how different, in some aspects, uh, American society is from Australia, especially when it comes to um, academia. And he had some great takes on that. Mm, well, the great P.J. O'Rourke, no longer with us, but his canon of work lives on, and let's hope it's republished and republished and republished. Uh, he wrote. Um, it's important at a funeral to display excessive grief. This will show others how kind-hearted and loving you are, and their improved opinion of you will be very comforting. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> Tim, you've, you've turned yourself into a, a sociologist of supermarket behaviour this week. You sent me a a clip from Twitter. Maybe you just want to set it up before we play it. Absolutely. Just think about the the social aspects of returning your supermarket cart to wherever it's meant to be. There's no actual benefit in it for you, other than you're doing the right thing, and that you know you'll be saving trouble for supermarket employees who would otherwise have to you know wander around the car park rounding up stray supermarket carts trolleys and uh but you do it because it's out of a sense of decency as a as a, a civilized person also there's nothing worse than pulling into what you think is an empty car park at the supermarket and there's a supermarket trolley in the middle of it so you don't want people to have to go through that sort of thing now there's a group in the u.s who i've discovered this week <laughs> who call themselves the cart narcs these people go around they identify people who are leaving their cars, leaving their supermarket carts in the car park, and um, they deal with them politely. In the mostly, they deal with them, but they've also they bring along video cameras, obviously, and they also bring along sort of rubberized magnets that identify a person as a cart lever outerer. <laughs> I I, ident- I identify as a cart lever outerer. <laughs> oh, you're in trouble. You're you're in trouble with the cart narcs. They are they are coming for you, Nick. <laughs> And uh, they also have like little magnetised flags they can stick at the car. So they don't do any damage. This is important. They don't do any damage to the paint of a vehicle. They just identify the uh, vehicle's occupant as someone who is uh, not played according to the proper supermarket cart rules. And mm. what we've got coming up is an audio of uh, cart narcs confronting a lever outerer. Oh, look at that. A half curbing. That's not where the carts go, sir. Well, you should because they want. Shut your mouth, punk! What does the sign say on the cart return? Please return carts here. Yeah, and the carts right there. But that doesn't say please return carts there. You're getting a hood magnet to shame, sir. Now, sir. I will as soon as you return your cart. Now, sir. They... Get your fucking shit off my fucking car! As soon as you take your cart. Get your out of here, motherfucker! Why are you? Why are you? Take... Get the out of here! I'll beat your. Yeah. Sir, no, you won't. Look at yourself. Sir, 
They give you two because you're being such an angry bones. This guy is so angry. He's getting double magnets and the flag. What a jerk face. Please be careful. Now, Go f yourself. Now, sir, they pay employees. I'm giving you another yeah, one. Beat your <laughs> I don't think there is an anger management course in the world <laughs> capable of relieving the very justifiable anger of that <laughs> shopper, right? I mean, this guy. He wasn't that. He was an angry bones and a jerk <laughs> face. I love all the very polite sort of terms he uses. <laughs> but Until honestly, he starts discussing bathroom behaviour, then it takes a strange turn. But it's like, it's like Scorsese scripted it or Tarantino. It's, uh, it's quite a masterwork. Beware the finger-wagging do-gooders bearing a whip. <laughs> That's just the thing, isn't <laughs> well, it? Well, the thing that makes me feel good towards the Kartnarks is the sheer disarming gentleness of their approach and the fact that they're not doing any damage. They've only got these sort of, as I say, these rubberized magnets that don't, don't do anything. And, you know, I, I can pretty much stand being called jerk face or angry bones. You know, this is not, this is not intimidating behavior. It, it is it's a masterwork of, as you say, passive-aggressive behavior. It's... Uh, it's there's a clip as well if people care to go online and uh, a search for the Kartnarks. And um, mm. I've only just discovered this group. I believe I'll, I will be following them and also obeying oh, basic cart etiquette. To some extent, it's irresponsible referring people to Twitter. But we may, I may put a, a link in the notes so they can actually watch the video. I mean, this is one of those things that works audibly as well as visually, but the, the pictures are very amusing. <laughs> Keep them coming, Tim. Look, on this topic of shopping carts, uh, I, you know, I, re I remember the, there was a case in the ACT Human Rights Commission uh, sometimes back, but I wrote about it in The Australian because I thought it was extraordinary, that um, the, the supermarket had been going around collecting abandoned shopping trolleys and they tried to grab this shopping trolley and take it back uh, from a homeless man who had all his, you know, all his kit and everything in it. His whole life was in this shopping trolley. Uh, and he, he successfully brought a complaint to the ACT Human Rights Commission that this was his home and he was being evicted from his home. And on that basis, the ACT Human Rights Commission ordered that the supermarket must give the trolley back. Well, did he use the um, age-old legal argument that home is where your cart is? <laughs> because because that, that, that would hold up in any, any kind of court wouldn't it any court under our, our, our Westminster kind of structure in, in a less witty podcast they would have had teams of people working for a full day and a half to script that line you've just uttered Tim <laughs> that you came out with it just like that oh fantastic so he won this bloke he won right he won he won well they, you know everybody wins at the ACT Human Rights Commission except yeah yeah you'd have to be literally Mussolini to lose in that court and even then it would be you know custodial sentence wouldn't it yeah, be I mean, you, you a sort of be, home prison something like that you can be drunk and abusive queuing to get into a nightclub but you know if you're a person of colour you will win that case in the ACT I promise you I've read the judgments it's uh, it, well didn't it, they it, go for like 15 years without a single murder conviction like Almost every murder that occurred in the ACT was invariably the most you'd be able to go for is manslaughter. Mm. And even then it was at the lower reaches. It, it, well, it's just extraordinary that they have a Human Rights Commission at all in the ACT, right? You know, if you think of all the places in Australia and probably in the world where, you know, there are less kind of obvious abuses of human rights. I mean, nobody is... Um, 
know, you know, it's not like Belarus or somewhere, right, where they really need a human rights commission. <laughs> you know, maybe they should just do the decent thing and send their hu- give their human rights commission to Belarus. <laughs> well, you've just reminded me, Nick, that um, you know the TV program NCIS, and it, it goes to different locations like NCIS Miami. And so, yes, New Orleans, and it's all these, they solve these horrible crimes, and everyone's in danger, and it's very menacing. And they're coming to Australia. We're going to get an NCIS Sydney. <laughs> what, what the hell? What? What are they going to cover? You know, yeah. neighbourhood disputes about overhanging branches on my side of the fence. Uh, this is not going to be um, riveting television. I mean, they could just maybe base themselves out at Western Sydney and cover the odd gang shooting, but that's a, almost a self-cleansing sort of problem out there. But mm. uh, I can't see it sort of getting the same sort of... Um, the same sort of drama and uh, and more and believable sort of uh, crime situ- situations that you get in say places like Miami and uh, and New Orleans. What sort of crime? What sort of things would they solve around your part of the world, Nick? Well, I don't know. Uh, somebody pinched my parking spot. I think that's. What about you know? I hear I hear there's a, a rash of shopping cart violations that they might look into <laughs> in places where you where you uh, get your groceries. Yes. No, we don't we don't go to places that have shopping carts. We go to places that have little wicker baskets. How lovely, yeah. Where you fill, up, fill them <laughs> up with, you know, vegetarian um, prosciutto and stuff like that. But look, uh, having made a squeaking statement like there is no need for a human rights commission in the ACT, of course, Rebecca Weiser wrote a very challenging piece of, in, the, in The Spectator this week about the sinister i can use no other word reaction of act police right now to the 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 vaccine freedom of choice convoy rebecca joins us now rebecca uh, just give us an outline of your column well it was a fascinating it was a a tale of two canberra crashes two canberra crimes and uh, it was interesting how the media the response of both the media and of the police was so different in these two cases so the first one involved a woman who was utterly fed up with the freedom protesters and uh, she decided to engage in a little counter protest of her own she turned out to be a chef and she was uh, all of her sort of unsavory protests if i can put it that way was captured on iphone actually by one of the victims she she saw their car and it had the little red Australian flags gaily flying and she saw red and she rammed into their car so hard that she mounted it and landed on the bonnet with a colossal crunch. (laughs) That's actually really hard to do, Rebecca. I've tried it so often, but the the secret is, and if you look at the video, you'll be able to see what, what occurs. If tires come together, you get a tremendous amount of grip. And uh, she was launched by the rear tyre of her vehicle um, uh, using as a, as a sort of a, a force vector. I'm not sure if I'm using that phrase correctly. Yeah, it hit the rear tyre of the other vehicle, which uh, catapulted it onto the bonnet. NASCAR style. Well, that's exactly right. It was sort of like Mean Girls, the movie, meets some Mad Max in Canberra. And because it's Canberra... It's got to be the summer nats, and it, it almost was. So you had this strange, <laughs> hoon-like behaviour. Now, once upon a time, I was actually born in Canberra. And that accounts for your 
It counts for your driving style, Rebecca. <laughs> but look, I, well, I am but a mere apprentice when I, 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 I was amazed. I, my jaw dropped to see her skills. But it was a tale of, a tale of two uh, driving offences. What was so the, the other second, one? Well, just to wrap that one up, the police came along. There was all the filmed evidence and they said, I mean, it was quite clear this woman had deliberately mounted this car and afterwards she went, oops, now you better call it a tow truck or whatever. So, um, but despite all of that, despite the fact it was obviously road rage and in the ACT there is an actual crime of road rage, uh, she was sent off and, and actually in the beginning had no, no, nothing at all. She was sort of dismissed. I think the police could understand how angry she was, you know, that these freedom protesters had come to town. Now, the second case was a gentleman. He was driving with uh, two friends. He, he'd come from Adelaide. He's a doctor. He's worked for 30, he's been in the RAF. He was a wing commander, served for 32 years, done seven deployments to places like Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Indonesia, to uh, East Timor, Bandar Aceh. So, so he's so he's prepared for Canberra. He then. was prepared for anything. I mean, this is a fellow who spent most of his life saving people's lives. This is the senior most doctor in the Middle East at the time that MERS broke out. Now, MERS is like the little cousin of SARS. You know, it's sort of much more deadly, but just doesn't know how to get around, you know. I think the um, scientists at Wuhan have to kind of tweak it a bit more to turn it into a really pandemic power. Yeah. Add more bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Just got to tweak this recipe a little bit. Well, MERS, of course, infects camels, so maybe that was the problem. So. In any case, this gentleman <laughs> was driving along to protest at the airport and came up to a car that was blocking the road. Now, perhaps because he is a trauma specialist, he's worked most of his medical life as an anaesthetist, and he thought it was a car accident that the car was slightly blocking his lane and went very slowly to drive around it until he ran into a extraordinarily portly fellow, I can say that because I saw the photograph, uh, who slammed his hands on um, the doctor's, the boot of his car. And before he knew it, he was surrounded by police and he was arrested and he was sent to solitary confinement, no less. He was charged with dangerous driving. I, it, it's quite extraordinary. How long was he in solitary confinement for? Yeah, how long was he? How long was he? How long was he in a box, as we say in stir? For six days. Six days. It's, it's extraordinary. Now they were going to let him out earlier, only but only if he agreed to leave Canberra and to never come back until his case was heard. I mean, in any case, it. it it seemed to highlight some of the differences, perhaps for someone like me, how Canberra has changed. But also, Nick, when you talk about human rights, it's quite uncanny that a, a, a town, of the town of Canberra that sort of considers itself an absolute bastion of human rights thinks nothing of throwing people into prison, into solitary confinement for six days, or indeed for mandating um, 
vaccinations or uh, none of this seems to have even attracted the attention so far of the human rights um, brigade as far as I can see. So, so, so let, me, let me clarify, Rebecca. In, in order to be banned from Canberra, I have to do what exactly? Because this is a real, this is, I, I need some more details. <laughs> yeah, it's something we all, we all would like. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, if you want to, just don't go there. <laughs> I wouldn't be recommending it, to be honest, at the moment. It, it doesn't seem to me like it's a very safe place. The demonstration, for example, the police, I mean, we have the spectacle of the police in Melbourne firing rub, rubber bullets at peaceful, peaceful protesters. In Canberra, they've just sort of upped the ante by using long-range acoustic devices, which apparently... Can, they, they confirmed that they had used this and all of the protesters said they started getting headaches and tinnitus and, I mean, really, this is the sort of weaponry that was used in the Iraq war. <laughs> well, that's what they're doing in New Zealand. Uh, Jacinda Ardern is playing Barry Manilow <laughs> to drive protesters away. What's the New Zealand Human Rights Commission doing about that? I mean... Goodness gracious, that is, that is, they, I don't think even in good Guantanamo Bay they played Barry Manilow. Did no, they? they didn't, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a better playlist at Guantanamo Bay. But uh, it's, um, these people are just, uh, they're becoming, they're becoming you know, the monsters that they thought they'd be standing up against when they first ran for politics or became journalists and so on, and now they're, they are the tyrants. Well, it's interesting you say that, Tim, because... Um, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, and the Canadian Freedom Convoy obviously inspired the Canberra demo, but when we see what's going on in Canberra at the moment, I mean, Trudeau, uh, it's well known that his mother was passionately fond of Fidel Castro, and it's also been observed on many occasions that uh, Little Justin, uh, some call him Fidelito because he looks so much like Castro. But the impression I have is that he is trying to turn Canada into Cuba without the sunshine, unfortunately, or the rumba and the salsa and the cha-cha-cha. So Some people spell his name now, Castro, ending in E-A-U. <laughs> So <laughs> gets both his uh, maternal and paternal titles in there. As Ben Shapiro constantly reminds us, there is no truth to the rumour that he is the illegitimate son of Fidel Castro. So we must stop saying that right away. Don't even mention it. Not the illegitimate son <laughs> of Fidel Castro. Oh, I just call him the love child. And there's no doubt that he he was on... There's a wonderful little clip of him and expressing his admiration for China and the Chinese Communist Party and saying, isn't it wonderful how they can just turn their economy on a dime and all of a sudden they can implement all these green policies. It seriously seems to be that he's now decided that this is his opportunity to turn. So if he's not turning Canada into Cuba, he's turning it into China. So not not content with calling large sections of his population Nazis, that his administration is now setting about freezing the bank accounts of anybody who donates anything to the freedom movement. And 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 just have a listen. This is I think it's the uh, the the 
Attorney General. Uh, Rebecca, you know, is this the Attorney General of Canada we're about uh, to hear? He's called the Justice Minister, and isn't that wonderful? I mean, that must have been a line written by Franz Kafka himself. So, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 to set this clip up, a TV reporter justifiably challenges them on this point, freezing the bank accounts of people who just give money to freedom protesters. Let's have a listen. Look, you've just compared people who may have donated to this to the, the same people who are funding maybe a terrorist. I just want to be clear here, sir. This is really important. A lot of folks say, look, I just don't like your vaccine mandates and I donated to this. Now it's illegal. Should I be worried that the bank can freeze my account? What's your answer to that? Well, if, I think if you if you are a member uh, of, you know, a, a pro-Trump movement who's donating hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars to this kind of thing, then you ought to be worried. It's not clear whether they think that being a a, a supporter of Donald Trump is, you know, one step up from being a Nazi, but they're, they're clearly both disreputable things. But look, all this is, you know, what worries me is this is being done use, using legislation that was put in place to stop terrorism. You know, that, that under those circumstances, they could freeze people's funds if they were, you know, planning to bomb, you know, whatever Canada's equivalent of the Twin Towers were. Uh, but, but, but... You know, to extend it to this, you know, people that just want to peacefully protest against the government action, we really need to be worried about that. You know, I mean, this is, we really need to be scared about what's happening in Canada. And is that just an extension of what's happening in other places, dare I say, in the ACT? Well, let's stay in, Canberra, uh, in Canada for a little bit longer. Um, they've now introduced, or they're now warning truck drivers many of whom have pets. They, they travel around Canada with their dogs or cats because, you know, you need some company when you're on the road for weeks at a time. The Canadian government, the government in Ottawa, and they're telling the truck drivers, that if you are arrested, and they, they do face arrest, and we've already heard there have been some arrests, if you're arrested and you're, um, your animal is, un, is not cared for within eight days, that uh, it will be taken into care and beyond, beyond the eight days, I think, um, I think they use the word, uh, the pet will be relinquished, which is a cute word for whatever the hell they're planning to do to them. It's like the Sicilian Mafia, isn't it? You know, pay up or we'll, we'll, we'll come for your goldfish. I mean, that's the sort of thing that they use. And, uh, are they serious? And last week, of course, we had that clip that they were threatening to take the children away from protesters. Uh, yeah. This is a first world country, or it was, you know, three weeks ago, and uh, this is what this is what they're talking about, and it's you know this this cute little stupid, you know, cupy doll idiot leading the charge, Justin Trudeau. Yeah, just a bridge ride across from one of the freest countries. What well, still remains, I think, one of the freest yeah. countries in Earth, despite some backsliding in some states. So, and yet, you know, again, what gets me, Tim, I know there's been a a little bit more noise about Justin Trudeau because he's behaved like an absolute goose. But he's, generally people aren't terribly concerned, you know. Other things are filling their minds. And you can see so e how so easily these freedoms slip from us, you know, when people are more concerned about, I don't know, well, but taking the knee at the Super Bowl or whatever else. Well, yeah, headlines it, it, it is funny when, um, when the main distraction you've got from all this COVID overreach is turning on the Olympics from China. <laughs> That's just so sick. I mean, that is wrong. You know, we've got, we've got the 1936 Olympics as a background to, to the rising of totalitarianism here again. It's, 
it's awful. The 1936 Olympics in 4K. (laughs) It's just horrible. If we're to believe the scathing reporting in mainstream media about the anti-vaccine mandate protesters, you'd think they're all dopey, dangerous and demented white supremacists waiting for the second coming of Donald Trump. Well, remarkably, we've managed to find one who is none of those things. Stephen Chavora lectures in European and Australian history at Campion College in Sydney, and he's taught the philosophy of social science and political theory at several Australian universities. He is sensible ever courteous and whenever I get to talk to him he's the smartest man in the room. Stephen it's a great pleasure to welcome you for your debut appearance on the six o'clock swill. Yeah great to be here and given the fact that I actually am the only person in this room right now I'm happy to say I am the smartest as well so thank you. All right let me rephrase that Dr Stephen Javora is the smartest man on the zoom. On to business Stephen uh, there are many of us who are troubled about the extraordinary coercion uh, applied to people to force them to vaccinate. Uh, You're not the only one who's concerned about the fact that livelihoods are being confiscated, characters maligned and, and people's rights as citizens removed without any scientific justification but but look just Well, I just whinge about it in the occasional column. You took yourself down to Canberra to stand in solidarity with the convoy protesters. What drove you to do it? Well, I mean, really just um, seeing people losing their jobs in New South Wales, friends losing their jobs in in other states uh, for mandates that certainly uh, I've never considered to be necessary or actually legitimate or just, but but certainly now, given ra- vaccination rates are so high all around Australia, um, having friends who just still are not able to work or are not able to participate in so many aspects of civil society uh, in other states, such as Western Australia, Victoria, Queensland, and just really having a strong sense that this is totally incompatible with the principles of a, of a liberal democracy, but also just actually totally unnecessary from a, a public health point of view. That is really what drove me and my wife joined me to drive to Canberra and join uh, what I would say was at least 100,000 Australians uh, at this protest. I actually went to two. I went to one on Tuesday, last uh, Tuesday week, and then I went to the, the huge one on Saturday, so that those are the that's the, the main thing that drove me was these mandates, which is just preventing people from working. Stephen Tim Blair here, mate. How would you characterise the crowd? I know it's always hard to do in uh, with such huge numbers, but if you could give us a general overview yep. of the sort of people who were turning up in Canberra. Yeah, I mean, the overwhelming majority of them struck me as quite working class. They were from all around Australia. We had people who who, who drove from Cairns. We had people from. Uh, South Australia. Oh, that's a good effort. They struck me as as overwhelmingly uh, working class people who had of, often lost their jobs in the hospitality industry or uh, working in trades and things like that. And and basically, th- there was a tremendous feeling of of joy actually among the crowd. That I I think that they they came to a place where just everyone understood where they were coming from. Everyone understood 
what they had endured over the last two years, but particularly over the last six months as, as mandates really kicked in. And the main message of the crowd really was to end the mandates. And I suppose the second message of, of, the, of these people was really about kids and to make sure that no mandates or passports snuck in through stealth for kids. So that is stopping kids from doing things like playing sports, going to swimming lessons and things like that. Um, there were definitely some professionals in the crowd, no doubt about it. In fact, probably many professionals. I had a, a great long conversation with, with a dentist and there was a, I, I know that some professor friends of mine were there. Mm -hmm. I can't name them, but I, I ran into some professor friends with PhDs there. So it, it, was, it, it was a mixed crowd, but the overwhelming majority of them struck me as, as quite uh, working class to lower middle class. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make there, Stephen, about uh, the feeling of solidarity that you've, uh, that you've detected, because one of the worst side effects of lockdowns and they're all bad. But one of the worst side effects, I guess, is this uh, loss of any sense of community for a lot of people. You can't meet at pubs, you can't uh, gather at schools, you've been restricted from uh, workplace gatherings and so on. So for, I, I guess for a great many, did you get the idea that for a great many of the participants in the, in the rally, this is their, one of their first big days out, the first chance they had to get together with people? Absolutely. And, and I didn't just go to the rally. My wife and I actually went to what's called Camp Epic or Camp Freedom, a freedom camp uh, set up at the Epic Exhibition Centre in Canberra, which is about sort of 20, 25 minutes drive from Parliament House, where you literally had tens of thousands of people from all around Australia who'd driven to that camp uh, to, to live there for, for the week. Um, and, and again, the feeling there was just euphoric. It was really just unbelievable. There was such joy, a sense of solidarity, a sense of finally we are around people who, um, you know, who don't look at us like we've got two heads because we've been criticizing the mandates or because we didn't take the vaccine or something like that. So it was just, yeah, this tremendous feeling that for sort of for the first time in a long time, in, in months, maybe even years, that they, they, they can just sort of freely express their opinions and, and, and not be afraid of, of sort of starting a fight or, or something like that. It was just a, a tremendous sense of belonging. That's, that's really the word, belonging, because I think a lot of people who, particularly those who, for whatever reasons they had, uh, didn't want to take the vaccines, have just felt so excluded from social gatherings, clubs, all sorts of things that coming together in their tens of thousands at the camp and then in I would say about a hundred thousand at the protest it was just probably the first time they just sent sensed felt a sense of belonging in in months I think uh, Nick and I might now be regretting not going to this oh it was unbelievable it was just one of the best weeks of my life and, and again going to the camp it, it was sad to leave and at this camp there was free food for everyone who who wanted to eat meals and things like that and just a feeling of the best word that I can come up with is, is fellowship there was just a feeling of fellowship among those who had been who were critical of the lockdowns critical of the mandates and also many there not all of them by any stretch of the imagination who resisted getting vaccinations um uh, yeah just a, just a, a feeling of overwhelming joy to be uh, among people who re frankly accepted you well, let, let's be honest about this. There's always a danger that the protests like this, however 
noble they might be, are hijacked by the lunatic fringe and that you, a respectable, thoughtful and polite doctor of philosophy, find yourself standing behind someone who is, well, uh, shall we say, not quite on message. Did you see such people in Canberra? Look, look, absolutely. There were definitely people there who had clearly been influenced by uh, some of those ideas. But generally speaking, those were not the ideas that you were hearing from the stage, from the stage, uh, from the stage, from the speeches that were taking place among the, the, the spokespeople of the movement. Um, you know, the, the emphasis was on the mandates, the lockdowns, the state border closures. But yeah, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that within the crowd, there were people who, who had bought into QAnon conspiracy theories uh, and things like that. Um, and in some ways, it shouldn't be all that surprising because you know, when you do uh, mandate uh, things uh, like a vaccine, and when it, it's so difficult to get information required to see whether these policies are actually justified or not like for example exactly what's going on in the hospitals and things like that and when some of the policy just seems so unbelievably irrational um you know like kids having to wear masks in schools teachers who are unvaccinated getting sacked uh, while you've got literally hundreds of unvaccinated children on the school grounds every day anyway there are some people who will jump to sort of conspiratorial explanations to to try to make some sense of it but yeah, absolutely. Uh, those people were there. Um, but at, at the end of the day, the, the, the major message was um, a political message, uh, a social message about the mandates. Let's, let's have a think about the mainstream media's coverage of this. Um, I don't think I'm breaking a confidence because I'm going to leave this anonymous, but a TV journalist told me that he had some sympathy with the the lockdown protesters, the the anti-vaccine protesters, and he spent a lot of time amongst them, talking to them, airline pilots, doctors, ambulance drivers, teachers, a whole range of thoroughly respectable people. But but they, they naturally asked him, when are you coming back with the cameras to do a story? And, and he had to say, well, look, I'm not. It, it just wouldn't be worth my time because they're not interested in running that sort of stuff. Did you see much uh, mainstream really. media presence? I didn't actually see a lot of mainstream media there, um, but I, I know that there was some there. Um, but but the, the mainstream media coverage that I read basically dismissed it as a group of fringe protesters. So uh, some media accounts just said, "Oh, you know, ten thousand people turned up," um, and there was so many more than ten thousand people, and the footage is there for everyone to see. And so they sort of dismissed it as sort of just ten thousand people. Uh, the Ca Canberra, the Canberra um, papers were very hostile to it. Uh, all they really focused on was the fact that uh, a Lifeline book fair had to close down because some of the Freedom Campers uh, trespassed with their vehicles and tents onto the parking lot of, of Lifeline, which um, was apparently preventing people from being able to uh, shop at the book fair on the same Saturday. But so, so the mainstream media, for the most part, Fairly, it was fairly dismissive of the whole thing, uh, which wasn't really surprising, but it, it was good uh, uh, to see one, at least one uh, article that did have some sympathy with it. But even that article from memory said something along the lines of, you know, th this is not the mainstream Australian view because, you know, well over 90% of Australians have gone and, and been vaccinated. And, and while I have nothing against anyone who wants to be vaccinated, that's absolutely fine with me. 
you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of people got vaccinated merely to keep their jobs. And, and a lot of people, a lot of people actually at this protest and at the campsite were vaccinated. Um, some people who I met up with um, uh, there, f- f- two friends of mine, both of them are double vaccinated. Vaccination was, was, was really not sort of the key issue for, for most of the protests, it was the mandates. Um, but yeah, I mean, predictably, the mainstream media was, was pretty dismissive. Um, so yeah, I, I, this movement certainly doesn't have the media on side with it, which, which isn't really surprising, to be honest, because so much of the media over the last two years uh, has been right on board with the lockdowns. And if it hasn't, and if even some of some parts of the media haven't been right on board with the mandates, they haven't been exactly critical of the mandates either. So I'm not surprised by any of that. Uh, Stephen, uh, just your points on the, the media's uh, uh, takes on these things. Your, uh, your fellows in freedom over in Ottawa uh, are experiencing much the same because uh, I've noticed uh, one Ottawa resident during the week put up a plaintive note on Twitter just saying actually being in Ottawa and reading about what it's meant to be like being in Ottawa, very, very different things. Uh, he said it was like, uh, it's like taking crazy pills. And there was also a note, um, uh, or sorry, a, a paragraph in the uh, one of the Canadian papers today referring to the arrests of the protest leaders who'd been led away in handcuffs. And um, it uh, said that uh, protesters um, appeared... Uh, unconcerned by the arrests and continued dancing in the snow, you know, as fascists do, I guess. Uh, Did you notice much feedback from the crowd in Canberra about events in Canada? Uh, Oh, yeah, they they were totally inspired by events in Canada. And in fact, while we were in Canberra, that was when uh, uh, states like uh, areas, regions like Ottawa, Saskatchewan, uh, and others, uh, um, I think Al- this, uh, Alberta, were also, also started basically to relax or drop their mandates, particularly mandates for the truckers. So when that started happening, when we were in Canberra, again, the, the, the sort of feeling was electric. There was uh, a, a tremendous sense of hope uh, that similar things could be accomplished uh, in Australia. So, yeah, um, the, the, the people at the Freedom Rally uh, were and are uh, watching what's going on in Ca- in Canada very very um, closely, um, yeah, and with great jubilation actually of late. Well, I think on any any reasonable assessment, Justin Trudeau has overplayed his hand. Uh, I mean, listen to this. Just listen to this uh, extract from the Canadian Parliament. Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who be able to get their lives back. These illegal protests need to stop, and they will, Mr. Speaker. Yeah, well, the, the wisdom used to be that the first person to raise the tyrannical horror of the 1930s lost the argument, but, but Justin Trudeau's played that hand. Uh, our politicians, on the other hand, Stephen, seem to be a little bit more... Um, a little bit more reserved, uh, perhaps more careful uh, about about uh, you know causing offence to a group that they know, uh, many of them are their voters. Yeah, I think. Um, What's your impression? I think one of the problems here in Australia is that the fact of the matter is, as as much as many uh, sort of uh, Australians who are critical of mandates and lockdowns. 
And actually, as uh, many sort of MPs who have been critical of mandates and lockdowns would like to see all of this end. The fact of the matter is that Australians have just been bombarded for two years with basically fear-mongering, quite frankly, from elements of the media, uh, from healthcare professionals and from some politicians, um, which has basically kept them in a state where they really, a lot of Australians just really want these mandates in place and they really want these lockdowns in place. And so there's a sense in which a lot, a lot of MPs are really just responding to um, sort of the will of a lot of Australians who, who are still very, very scared, even though the statistics that have come out and the Australian Bureau of Statistics has you know, basically indicated things that, that uh, you know, for example, that, um, well, you know, the median age of death of anyone from COVID is 83.7 years old. For women, it's around about 86 years old. Um, and that 90, 91.4% of COVID deaths have other conditions listed on the death certificate. The average number of other diseases or conditions listed on the death certificate, the average number is actually 2.7. And you, you, basically the average person has uh, over a 99% you know, chance of survival if they get COVID. I mean, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that, that people are so scared, but they are. And I think that's what's licensed a lot. The, uh, the, the paucity of data, I mean, this is one of the great indictments, I think, through this whole thing that, that you know, we, we've been very poor at providing data. I think a lot, of, a lot of the time, to be honest, just because they haven't been uh, able to collate it properly, it's a bit, a bit um, it's shown up some big weaknesses there at, at a federal level. Uh, but also, I think there's undoubtedly a, a sense that they haven't released inconvenient data and and uh, the, the better tactic would have been just be open with this and let people make up their own minds why do you think that is well i think early on people got very spooked uh with covid and maybe justifiably we all saw images coming out of china of bodies piling up uh, we heard very early of, of people dying in their hundreds in hospitals in in italy and so very early on it, it, it seemed quite catastrophic and, um, you know, there was a genuine concern that our hospital system would be overwhelmed. And, and, and to be honest with you, I think that the fear of all of this just got baked into our psyche. And there was probably always this sense that the great catastrophe was around, the great catastrophe experienced by China, the great catastrophe experienced in America, the great catastrophe experienced in Italy was just around the corner in Australia. And so to be safe, um, we have to keep this lockdown the way it is. Uh, we have to uh, introduce these mandates. And, and consequently, certain, certain figures that, that would have really um, been detrimental to the lockdown cause, for example, you know, what is going on in the hospitals? What, is, what exactly is the surge capacity of the hospitals? How many hospitals in, in the major cities or in the regional areas are actually overwhelmed or even close to being overwhelmed? We rarely got that kind of information. Um, and probably, in my opinion, because the surge capacities were nowhere near being reached. Um, at the end of the day, that was meant to ultimately be what was justifying uh, the lockdowns. And, and even today, uh, I think just today or yesterday, there were about 90 New South Welsh people in ICU all around uh, New South Wales, 90. And yet we still have these uh, vaccine mandates in so many workplaces, even though everyone knows the vax rate is in New South Wales is well over 90 percent. It could be around about 95 percent or something, at least for like, double vaxxed. Yes. 
incredibly just, high. And just to put that, just to put that into perspective, the two, ninety people in ICU is well below the peak, and and even the peak is well below capacity. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, and look, it shouldn't look. Frankly, if I can just be honest, it shouldn't be surprising that a lot of people then start reaching for conspiracy theories to explain such manifestly irrational, and consequently unjust and, and frankly cruel. Uh, public policy. Uh, what other explanation is there other than there must be some sort of mustache stroking nefarious wicked people out there causing all of this for some uh, sort of Blofeld-esque reason that only they know. And, and if you want to figure it out, then go to QAnon. I mean, I'm not surprised that you get those kinds of things. Stephen, um They've got different problems in New Zealand. Uh, over there, Jacinda Ardern is worried about something called the pindemic. I don't know what, what it is, but apparently it's related to this coronavirus nonsense. But do, you, do you get a sense, just looking around uh, Australia and, and you know, around the world, the places that have undergone the longest lockdowns and have placed themselves under the most restrictions, that there's a certain segment of the population that massively responds to that and uh, that's why they're craving further restrictions. You see it in New Zealand, you certainly see it in uh, Western Australia and Queensland. What the hell's going on with us as a species, man? Oh, absolutely. Well, this, I, I think a lot of it just comes down to basic human psychology. I mean, Machiavelli said it beautifully um, in The Prince. He said, he, he asked the question, what is it better for a ruler to be loved or feared? And, uh, you know, he concluded that it's actually better for a ruler to be loved, uh, to be feared than it is to be loved because you can't make someone love you. And if, even if they love you, they can fall out of love with you, but you can make people fear you. And when they fear you, they'll do what you want. And again, because we were so spooked by COVID early on, uh, we went down this path of creating very, very fearful populations, not just in Australia, but frankly, all around the world. A recent book has been written on it on the British experience, State of, state of Fear. Mm. Um, and basically, what, what is going on? Well, people have been made to feel incredibly afraid of this virus, where the overwhelming majority of people should really have little to no fear of it. And... The great thing is, though, uh, the government is stepping in to rescue people from this thing that uh, they so fear. And so I think that through this creation of fear, there has been a, 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 a creation of a tremendous appetite for security and to be saved from it. And so there are just a lot of people who crave uh, these mandates. And look, there are still people writing articles saying that we should have waited before we got out of lockdowns, that a lot of people should still be locked down. There are actually still people out there who want the lockdowns to, to have continued. It's, it's just unbelievable. I, I guarantee you every person writing those sort of articles has a very cosy laptop class gig and uh, they've actually probably made money during the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And let me tell you, again, looking around at that Freedom Campsite, I saw a lot of people who looked like they were out of work tradies, out of work customer service, out of work hospitality, basically people who didn't look like they were making $150,000 a year on their laptops. And that's been one of the massive elements of this whole, the, the last two years. So it's, 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 it's revealed a gaping divide between what we might call, yeah, the laptop class and the non-laptop class and the la and the non-laptop class what what can we do basically let them eat cake let them eat cake the, the, you have highlighted there a very 
frightening point to me that there are people who do not want this terrible two years of COVID restrictions and illiberalism uh, to end. They actually want it to continue. And, and, and let's be frank about this, often because it's in their own best interests commercially, sometimes because they're academics who've invested in this and the whole career and prestige is invested in it. Sometimes they're just public servants who rather like bossing us around. But let's face it, I mean, the one, one group who does not want this to end is Big Pharma, right? You know, I mean, they, they would like us to keep going with booster shots until 99% of our body weight is Pfizer. You know, that's what they want. And, and it's a serious blow to their business model if, if the reason for taking vaccines disappears, right? I mean, it, it, I, it, that's the sort of argument the left would have been prepared to make about Big Pharma 10 years ago when they, like us, were suspicious. Not suspicious about, I mean, why be suspicious? It's a company that's built to make money. It, it's, not a, it's not a suspicious thing. It's just a statement of how corporations usually behave. But why is it that 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 we've give, the left have given big pharma a, a free pass? And that that is so true. One thing that I've noticed is that yeah, academics again who ten years ago would have seen sort of big pharma as one of you know this manifestation of of capitalistic oppression are absolutely silent on what is so obviously a bonanza for big pharma and also for big tech. Um, Bezos made about. 37 extra billion dollars out of COVID. Um, it's unbelievable that the silence is absolutely deafening. And I think it's probably for two reasons. I think that a lot of academics are more afraid of sounding conservative than they are of actually properly rigorously analyzing what's going on in the world. And so if what they have to say sounds almost like someone like Trump could have said it, um, then they suddenly almost switch around and, and become the very thing that 10 years ago they would have strongly criticized. A great example is you know, Trump. You know, you know, uh, 20 years ago, uh, it was common in academia to criticize globalization and to, to, and to argue that globalization was bad for workers. Trump comes along and says that exact thing. And suddenly academics start being concerned about the, the fragility of the global world order and things, just ridiculous. Um, so there's a kind of reactionary element in a lot of academics that they, they're not speaking out against obvious tyranny of, of big pharma and big tech censoring information. Why? Because they don't want to sound like conservatives. So there's a reactionary element to it, I believe. I would have thought the laptop class would have got this because all of them probably like me are victims of the great... Uh, brother inkjet printer uh, business model where you I picked mine up about 10 years ago for $2.50 or something in office works and ever since then I've been going in spending $150 every now and then for the cartridge now the the, the vaccine thing is is the equivalent <laughs> of getting every person in the world man woman and child to, to buy this inkjet printer and continually have to fill it with cartridges, except that the government pays. I mean, it, it's beautiful. Don't forget your booster cartridge. <laughs> I need one right now. I think it's coming out all faded. But seriously, you know, the, the suspense of, of rational thought or, or even just curiosity um, is it just, you've read a lot about this, of course. This is, we go to 
the nature of woke belief and it is belief and faith and and it's not based on rational evidence and certainly doesn't respond to changing evidence. Uh, well absolutely and again i think i think the key element here uh is fear but i i also think that there, there has become a kind of wokeness element to the lockdowns like in the sense that you know those who wanted to crit criticize the lockdowns or criticizing the mandates or hit the streets starting to protest it well sort of the woke instinct kicked in for a lot of people and all they could do was describe those people as nazis or describe those people as sort of just heartless heartless granny killers who just cared nothing for other people and were just only interested in themselves uh, almost as though they were out to sort of oppress uh, the vulnerable minority, and even even the, the the use of the term sort of the vulnerable in all of this. Of course, there are vulnerable people out there, but this is almost being turned into a kind of woke issue where it's between sort of the heartless people who are critical of lockdowns and mandates, and then who do you have on the other on, on the other side? Oh, you've got the vulnerable, you know, which is exactly how wokeness tends to divide society up. Um, so that, that woke element has kicked in. But to, to be honest, what I've learned over the last two years um, is how fragile, quite frankly, our, our, our appreciation of liberty and our understanding of liberty and our understanding of the dangers of governments growing too big and technocracies taking over from democracy, to how fragile our, our appreciation and probably even love of liberty is, particularly when we're made afraid. Here's the key question. When we eventually admit that this pandemic is over, will we get those freedoms back? Will we be able to walk into the Qantas lounge without being barked at with announcements every few minutes, you know, that you've got to keep 1.5 metres distance and remember to wear your mask and wear it properly over your nose and properly fitted over your mouth, you can face a fine. This reminds me of, of my visits to countries like uh, Laos, you know, in the early days back in the 90s, when the streets in every street in Laos, there would be a loudspeaker issuing just such announcements to people all the time. And, and oh, the Qantas Lounge, it's, it really is like some third world communist dictatorship. But look, I'm probably getting carried away. But will we ever get back to normal? That's my question. I think we could get back to normal once basically... Um, the um, the vaccine enthusiasts overplay their hand and basically just start demanding too many boosters to the point where people are just not prepared to take a uh, you know a fourth a fourth shot and things like that. so will things get back to normal yes they could but that will only be because um, you know uh, the the draconian incursions into people's private medical lives just become so obviously tyrannical that a lot of people who you know you know, six months ago, we're all on board. We're just saying like, enough is enough. I'm not getting a second booster. I'm not even getting a first booster. I'm certainly not getting a fifth booster. Enough is enough. And people basically start voting with their feet. They stop going to, um, to venues that, that, that demand this kind of thing. Um, that, that, so it could happen, but it won't necessarily be because people just think, oh, I think we've, you know, this has gone on. We don't need this anymore. I think it'll just be what, 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 we might, what we might call big pharma just overplaying its hand and pushing too far, but still getting an awful lot out of people in the meantime. So Stephen, at a time when we feel our reserves of common sense are seriously depleted, you've certainly been a great booster for that today. Look, we welcome you back anytime to the six o'clock swill and uh, 
Thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you so much. Always love joining you. Thank you very much. Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. Anthony Mundine has jumped on the anti-vaccination bandwagon. Some of these people have gone down some serious mm. rabbit holes. Yes, there is a core here where actually they think that they are trying to save everyone else. Rory Beck is back on the line because as a person who has studied literature in I think 50, 54 languages, Rebecca, you, you, you would appreciate a little literary gem which has come Tim's way from the, I think, much underappreciated uh, great novelist of the uh, 20th century or 21st. I'm not sure when he wrote this masterpiece. 20th century. This is, uh, this is from Mike Carlton's novel. I've written about this online before, but it does, does deserve an audio audience. Mike Carlton, the... Um, former radio presenter, former ABC television presenter, and current Twitter angry old man. Well, he was all those things as well, were they? I, I thought he was just a, a novelist in, you know, in uh, our, our Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> no. But I don't know. You, Carry on. You wrote a novel called Off the Air. Now, it's an old, an old belief that, um, an old saying that first novels are always autobiographical. And, and Michael took that very literally. And embarrassing. All novels are... Oh, it will be, yes. Not, you know, to Michael. So his novel is about someone who's working in London radio during the early 1990s. It's about an Australian journalist in particular working now, that, in, uh, in London radio. That was Michael. Exactly like Mike, the character was uh, born in 1946, drives an E-type Jaguar, and dreams of becoming a naval historian. So we now have established we're pretty much Mike is writing about himself, an imagined and and heroified version of himself. He does this other he has this other little Dickens like trick in the book. All the characters, all their names are indications of their characteristics. So you have Sir Peter Toady and uh, this sexually voracious couple called uh, Lord and Lady Fondle. Sir Cedric mouthpiece and so on. So, Mike's character. What sort of surname do you think he'd give himself if he wants to identify some characteristics that uh, he thinks that he he features? Something that's self-aggrandizing, no doubt. Bruce Brain. His surname is Brain. <laughs> He's not subtle, is he? Anyway, and I've got a couple of extracts here for you <laughs> because, I mean, there's there's Bad writing about sex, and then there's Mike Carlton. Okay. Oh, this is going to be hard work <laughs> to get through without laughing. Okay, this is this is in the book. <clears throat> right. Any vibrations at that moment were, in fact, the enthusiastic response of the young woman who lay sprawled across the office Chesterfield beneath his <laughs> pumping loins. Oh, she moaned. Erg, he countered. Her slender thighs heaved in joyful reply. She was exquisite, a fragile orchid from the exotic east. Okay, okay, we've managed to get through that one. Just, just a minute before you go on, the, 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 does he use the customary <laughs> spelling of the word erk? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, it, it's been well edited. Um, 
now we, we get to learn a bit more about the exotic uh, beauty from the from the from the east. Turns out she might have some sort of medical condition. Okay, we're back to the book now. Her unblemished ivory body, with its fine dusting of black pubic hair, <laughs> excited him <laughs> as he had never been before. Now that's all over. What is she? Some sort of monkey? He's sleeping with a yeti. Okay. Okay, we've established the woman's got issues. We shouldn't draw attention to her uh, disability. Fine dusting of pubic hair, did you say? Um, <laughs> okay, we've, I've just got the... This is easily the finest line, not just in the book, but in the history of literature. She was a kitten until they made love when kitten gave way to cat. <laughs> I like to imagine top cat. It it it, it, it it just you know it just says something about. He the, was fifty the, the, when he wrote that, by the way. I mean, this is not the work of a of some pervy little twenty-two-year-old. This is a, a guy who was, uh, you know, he'd been around a bit. And um, man, oh man, they actually published it. Incredible. Well, I I think that was a great thing. Uh, frankly, um, if you read Mike Carlton nowadays, on and I don't, but. It used to be a professional requirement because it could could have yeah. been handy in was, my former role paper, as yeah. uh, editor of Cut and Paste, for example, and all sorts of hilarious scrapes that he got into. Um, but uh, I think I think I prefer this earlier, albeit somewhat um, embarrassing. <laughs> well, I've got one of the few. I've got one of the few copies on Earth that have survived what would have been very well-deserved burnings, I think, back in the day. <laughs> but, yeah, I've got, I've got a copy I can, I can lend it to you, so uh, you, you'll be, get, uh, you get to enjoy it in, uh, in full. It is, it is not easy. It is not easy. You can, um, you, can, you can see a lot of the staples. You can see a lot of the slashes and cuts and welding. It's, uh, it is not a novel that flows. Oh, come on. Mm. If those clips, if those um, segments you read out are any indication, I can't oh, wait. They're, they're the highlights. They are the highlights. Uh, you, you've got to go through a lot of crap to get there. Mm. There's also, mm. by the way, he, um, he turned out to forecast the future in his, um, mm. his book. Absolutely. Off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Where did he end up? Coincidence? I think not. Well, there's another one as well. Um, you might recall that uh, in real life, Mike was occasionally fond of throwing wine at people. I think he threw a glass of wine at Piers Ackerman because that's the sort of chap Mike is. Well, in the book, his character, I think, dumps a whole bottle of wine over someone's head at some sort of awards night dispute. So the yeah, parallels some, are but No doubt for some eerie. righteous justification. He was... Entirely justified in throwing. Oh, absolutely! Of wine over yeah, it's. It, um, uh, I'd like someone with some training in the psychological field to read it. That mm. that review would be worthwhile on so many levels. <laughs> it, it would be fascinating. It 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 really pulls up sharp, doesn't it? I mean, we we think that kids are getting dumber. You're going to have something to say about that in a minute, I'm sure, Tim. But but it just shows that you know. Dumbness has been accumulating uh, for some time, but I don't know. Maybe I'm being well. Too maybe maybe we've got a future audience from Mike being built even as we speak, because we now have evidence—the the first empirical evidence 
that all of the lockdowns, all of the closures, all of the shutdowns, all of the restrictions are making children dumber. The um, Centre for Disease Control in the US, massive bureaucracy, and they do things among, you know, failing to stop pandemics. They also uh, set various health standards for children and such, right down to um, their reading and verbal ability. Now, the previous standard for children used to be that they, they, they were probably pretty, pretty well-progressed if they knew approximately 50 words at 24 months of age. 50 words. So that's all your obvious ones, mum, dad, all that sort of stuff. They've very quietly adjusted that to 30 months. So we're six months dumber now to get to 50 words. So these are future Carlton readers, maybe. I don't know. Or future Democrat voters. Uh, they've, the, the great hope for the Democrats in the US was always that they'd get so many Hispanic arrivals that they could start swinging the swinging states like Texas, which vote Republican, start swinging them towards the Democrats. But that's not working out because a lot of those arrivals are culturally very conservative, and they're finding now their natural home is with the Republican Party. So maybe their only hope is to just breed really dumb kids and uh, get them to vote for Joe Biden or, or his uh, equally stupid successors. Well, I think that's an optimistic note on which to end the podcast, Tim. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait, you know. Um, somehow, though, I don't think we'll defeat this woke tide quite as easily. Uh, but look, thanks thanks again, Tim. Thanks, Rebecca, for joining us. Thanks for Stephen Chabura joining us earlier from the front line. You can email us at nick at radiobcc.com. Keep them coming. And don't forget your bounden duty, your essential, your must the thing you must do, probably before this podcast is even finished... Is return shopping carts, yeah? <laughs> return shopping carts and give us five stars or more um, if your podcast provider, right? Rebecca's giving us five stars. Uh, and, uh, of course, what else we got to do? You have to press the bell there. That'll notify you of future podcasts. So you won't have to wait for Tim's blog on a Monday to know we've just posted one. And uh, finally, of course, tell you your friends. It seems a bit mean to keep the fun to ourselves so please share that around the six o'clock swill the podcast even the woke people <laughs> couldn't kill we we are indestructible uh, in the face of woke we are still on spotify i think last time i looked thanks for joining us we're back again next week every american and lbj is with australia all the way Australia is the best place in the world to bring up a family. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. How good is Australia? Yeah!